Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. I get to have an honorary Bluebell, Marissa Oh my gosh, I just had a, I do this all the time. I know your name and Burgess. I knew that. <laughs> Marissa Burgess, who reached out to me and, and because I did Karina's interview and Savannah's and to find out like this, that Karina's husband was an ice skater, that, that you guys just keep expanding the circle and that you're her sister, who I'll just give a little jump ahead that you were both principals in Paris, but in two different shows, her at the Lido and you at the Moulin Rouge, which is fantastic. I just think how fun if I knew both of you, I could go two nights and see both sisters in the spotlight. So we're going to go backwards and you can introduce yourself and just tell a little bit because we've heard Karina's, but yours is a very a different journey and a similar journey. And I love that you, that you guys both got to be in the limelight, but in different ways. So well, what was it like you, growing Sherry. up? It's, it's so cool being here with you as well. And, and yes, the, the Australian uh, principal dancers, ro they rock the roost, really, let me say. <laughs> Michelle Brown, Karina Burgess, Amanda Ricard, all simultaneously. It was good times uh, at the Lido. And, um, and yes, and then I came along uh, five years after my sister because we've got five years, five years difference between us. So I'm just so curious because it's something with the Aussie girls. Because a few other people said you guys trained in everything and you took it very serious, like that you were taking ballet, jazz, and then I want to explain what character is as well. But yeah, it I was mean, weird because there wasn't that, didn't seem like there's a lot of performance opportunities, but you guys trained so hard. And then some people that have these places they live where there's a bunch of performance opportunities aren't working as hard. Like every Australian dancer I've worked with, I feel like there's an extra sparkle. Their technique was really good. And I can't generalize for the whole country, mm. but I don't know what it is with you Aussie girls. I was super impressed. There's something in it in the water. Okay, I, I get asked this about uh, in journalists ask me this question quite often. What is it about the Australian girls? I know for one part, they're, they're the flavor in Europe um, because of a sort of a freshness about them. So um, let's say compared to girls from Russia or England or America, maybe not America is not a good, but the new world people, let's say the new world people, Australia being one of them, have some kind of naivete and freshness about them. So when they get to uh, Paris, which is an old world, um, they sort of stand out as being just innocent and, and sweet and, and fresh. And I think that really resonates with uh, the casting over there. And then just so hard working. And also, if you're going to buy a ticket to go to Paris from Australia, you better have, right. you know, you better have your ducks in a row because you're going to have to fork out thousands of dollars just for the opportunity to audition. So, yeah, there's that confidence that you have to have. And the training is amazing. If I go right back, if you really want to know and go right, right back, we are attached to Britain, obviously. And uh, in the very early 60s, when Margot Fontaine was the, uh, the sort of big ballet star at the time and Nureyev with her, they used to come to Australia and they helped our ballet scene grow exponentially 
throughout the 60s and 70s. So we have a very solid ballet base in Australia, thanks to them. And also in the 1910s and 20s, thanks to Anna Pavlova who came to Australia. And there was always that culture there. And we have a very uh, diverse culture. So just think about all of the, you know, European cultures in Australia that live there, you know, the immigrants and how much they wanted their kids to be able to have access to culture. So that's where it comes from. Wow. Okay, so tell me about your ballet teacher in your school because I heard from some Karina and you're the baby sister. So you're seeing her already kind of start into this. What was it like for you to come in to a world she's already had stepped into? It was tremendously easy for me. It was all said and done. I was confident. I was trained. Karina um, was on stage as a principal dancer when I was only 11. So imagine she used to send me little gifts, you know, from Paris in boxes. And, and I remember opening them up and smelling them, thinking, oh, this smells like Paris. And, and all this sort of, you know, the photographs were flooding in because she was highly publicised. And, um, you, you know, I, I knew it was my big sister, but then when you see this image and you think, well, if my sister can do that, hell, I can too. And I'm Were you taking to. ballet and dan you were dancing back oh, in yes. Australia while she was in Paris? So you're still taking class? Very much, yeah. It and it gave, was... me, it gave me a direction because, you know, when kids get to 11, 12, 13 and they drop out. Uh, they do. They, they, it's all cute and fun, but as soon as you have to start really holding your leg up in the air and you really have to have stamina and everything becomes difficult and your muscle structure has not yet kicked in because you're not yet a woman, um, there's that really awkward age where you struggle with your body and, um, and you drop out. Uh, so at that point in time, I tried to stop uh, and then I came back to it with the motivation of having this job carrot in front of my nose. And, and I, uh, I had a reason to sort of dig in and, and work. Yeah. So you said that when we talked earlier that your ballet teacher had a different way how she approached and you, it was almost like auditioning to be in the school, but in this very strict school, it was still talking about, she was still talking, you knew there was something about the bluebells if it was just mentioned now and then that there was yeah. this thing for tall girls. Kind of maybe if you were mystery. ever looking like you were going to be too tall for ballet, then the bluebell word would get mentioned. And although around the studio there was all pictures of successful ballerinas on the walls, there were no pictures of any bluebells anywhere necessarily. But there was mentioned in tasteful tones about the beautiful taller dancers that go on to Paris. And yes, they dance topless, but it's so so tasteful, you know. And she used to always talk it up like this. Oh. And um, yeah, so so we always you know, had that pegged in the back of our mind, but I didn't have it in the back of my mind. It was in the front of my mind because I'd already <laughs> at 14 years of age been to see everything that there was to see. And, um, and by the time I was sort of 11, I'd pretty much um, seen this famous photo from, from Monsieur René Gruel, which did all the posters for the Lido, um, Barcelona, Scala, and uh, Vegas Stardust, or, or anything that was... Um, Showgirl, he did the artwork, as everybody knows. And when I saw that poster, I just fell in love with it. I didn't know why or what. I didn't understand anything about it, but I fell instantly in love with it. And I wanted to be that Gruo girl. Wow. And so you're, mm. is this overlapping when you're seeing Karina's pictures or were you seeing that poster? That was prior. That was prior. So that was as Karina was finding out about being a bluebell because as she mentioned, she didn't know anything about it, but we just had this one brochure and 
and that was all we had to go on. And I think it was the Stardust brochure um, that we had in our hands because it was from Patricia Lee. And uh, so she had given that to Karina and that's all we had to go on. There was no other way of knowing what the leader was at the time. But uh, that was enough for us and my, and my teacher's work. And my teacher's work. Let's just picture so, yeah. that come, yeah, that you were getting little hints of it. So you saw her in the show and then came back home and still are finishing school and like, are you like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Paris definitely, and audition. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely lined up and didn't even really think about an audition or anything, but I definitely lined up. But what I, I started to do was I sneakily, because there was no way of knowing, I sneakily started lying about my age. <laughs> Sorry, not my age, my height. <laughs> about my height you can you can lie about both <laughs> <laughs> there's no lying about my age but I, I um I fibbed about my height and I started like knocking little bits of centimeters onto it or a few millimeters and every time I was measured um we'd ring Karina and say oh yes I'm taller now and and Karina would say oh wow you could be gross. and there's no way of knowing you know there was no way right. of knowing <laughs> How tall did so you then, well I was I was increased? I was this height, which I am now at 171 centimetres, piddly little 171 centimetres. <laughs> I was this height at 14. It's on my passport. And uh, and so I started trying to get to five foot nine. You know, I was five foot seven and I wanted to be at five foot, at least eight and three quarters was the big, the big target. And uh, when Karina came out to audition, uh, sorry, Karina came out with Bluebell and Tanya to do Hennessy Cognac, uh, tour for promotions they were in Melbourne and so Channel Channel 10 uh, Australia flew me to Melbourne to meet Miss Bluebell along with another girl from my studio who was tall <laughs> unlike me and uh, I hadn't seen Karina in years um, you know as far as she was concerned I was just her gangly little sister who was growing so tall so quickly and I hadn't seen her in years and um, I'll never forget this. We were at this five-star hotel waiting there, like two little debutantes. And Tanya and Karina came through the door. They were dressed in Dior. The, my sister was wearing a pea green turban. It was unbelievable. I don't even talk about the shoes. Tanya was a real tall girl. She was at least six foot two, I think. Um, but the two of them walked through the door like these absolute goddesses in their couture. And the first thing Karina said to me was like, you're too small. No. <laughs> and I went, hi. <laughs> nice to see you. Can I have a hug? And she was worried because she, she said, I thought you were five foot eight. And I said, oh, I, I think I am. <laughs> anyway, it was embarrassing. I, um, I auditioned, Bluebell said to me, well, this girl, the, the other girl, she said, you can come whenever you're ready. Uh, you're the right height. And she said to me, you can come whenever you're tall enough. <laughs> you're the right technique. Uh, and that was that, you know, so we did a little audition in the, in the hotel. And then later on, I, I spent the day with Bluebell. Um, the other girl went away and I, I ended up spending the entire day with Bluebell stuck in a, a sort of a, a box with about, 20 Japanese Hennessy cognac officials who were all eating lobster and caviar and we're in one of those the Melbourne Cup we're at the Melbourne Cup race which is one of the premier races in the world to watch the great race and we're in one of those tiny little boxes you know no bigger than 12 foot square 
um, all crushed in and just me there, you know, really not enjoying myself because I didn't like caviar. And the, there was only men and Miss Bluebell and me, and that was it. And the only, the only fun thing about it was the two girls, Karina and Tanya, went down the runway, uh, the, the runway, what do you call it, the track, um, in an open back um, Rolls Royce with their Dior on. And, uh, and then I just got to behold their gorgeous presence at the races that day. But otherwise, that was my, my, my audition for Blue, Miss Bluebell. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get that. I didn't. So how did, how did you end up in Paris then? After doing a quick stint in a, a small production here in Australia, a really good one with uh, Regmac Productions, whom a lot of Bluebell girls have also worked for and with, um, which was led by Reg Priestman, uh, who was a principal dancer at the Lido in the 60s. And um, I did that job, which was fantastic. It was a great start out. I was solid solidified my idea that I wanted to do this job. And then I finished that contract and Karina called me no sooner later and she said, we need you in Paris now, get on a plane and come over. And I sort of complained. I was like, no, I have a boyfriend. No, I want to stay here. And I, I, I was in that sort of no man's land, not knowing really where my life was going. But um, she just put her foot down and she said, now. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh -huh. So, so, so I went she must know. Because you know if you're going to pay 2000 or however much money that plane ticket mm. was, you better want to do this. Yeah. So and she must have money. had... Yeah, she must have had confidence in you to tell you to take that risk to fly all the way out there. Yeah, definitely. So she said, look, they're auditioning now for February. It was December. So I got on a plane and, and um, I did my audition. So that was uh, cut and dried, easy, done. Got that job at the Moulin Rouge. So, yeah. And so I was due to start a couple of months later and then I had a couple of months of nothing to do. And it was a bit of a problem. Oh, how am I going to stay in shape and, and all this sort of stuff. So end of the day, I think I took some classes, but I just ended up. And this is why I feel so strongly. And yes, I've completely bummed in on your Bluebells Forever group. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> As an honorary Bluebell. So pick me, pick me. Um, I, I was uh, backstage Lido for two solid months waiting for my Moulin Rouge contract to come up. So what was that like? What was that view, what you got to see? Because it feels like what a great preparation for what you're going to do that nobody else would have that van two whole months of watching backstage on stage and like what did what was that experience like and what did you get it was to see the greatest training camp I, I didn't really intend to be that way I was just backstage with Karina's husband Savannah's dad um in their dressing room me and his niece who was three <laughs> and I was kind and of there's like a dog involved I feel like uh, and the dog <laughs> so, so it's me, the 17-year-old, the 3-year-old and the dog, and we just were hanging backstage watching all the gorgeous creatures run by left and right and centre and the acts would drop in and it was all very fun backstage, Lido. Um, yeah, and you could have your dog. <laughs> uh, and then on the second show when we sort of ran out of things to do backstage, I'd take little, little Nisa up um, by the hand and we'd go all the way to the top and through the uh, orchestra pit, which is way up high. And then we'd make way access to the balcony where there was no one on the second show. And uh, we would watch Panache, the greatest Don Abbott show in all shows. Oh my God, it was the most glorious show. And sorry if everyone's got another opinion about that, but I just feel that it was Don Abbott's greatest moment. 
Uh, and I got to watch Panache every single night every for two night solid months. Mm. I got to watch all the amazing divas that ran that joint and all those women. And, and you know, my favourite, I'm going to say, was Belinda Smith and obviously my sister, but also Michelle. And every single woman had her own stamp, her own character, her own personality. They were incredible. And uh, I, I guess just wondering how on earth someone could be so captivating from such a great distance, you know, Belinda with her sparkles in her eyes and throwing looks that would just slay <laughs> you know, on the spot. And I could feel it in my chest and I was way up in the balcony and, and just watching everyone in their individuality because that's what the nice thing was. It wasn't a lineup. It was all individuals. It's yeah. beautiful. And I did that for two solid months. I still can't believe what an amazing opportunity to watch backstage and watch those people that really captivated you. Because if you're in the show rehearsing, you would never get to see that the same as getting to be backstage and in front to see well, what makes backstage these women so front. unique. And that's the thing. I was backstage as well. Um, I'll never forget the first day I went in there. I, so I, I got my best dress. It was like this minxy little black sequin number with, you know, the 1980s frill at the bottom. And um, I got all dressed up and Miss Bluebell took me by the hand and walked me in and sat me in the fish bowl. You know, they talk about the fish tank. Yeah. And so I was there with the official guys. I guess I was there with the bosses. I don't know. I was 17. I didn't know who anyone was. Oh, yeah. so, and, and I was so embarrassed because every time the, the, the show would start up, Bluebell would say, okay, now they'll sit on the table. And I was like, I, don't, I didn't want to sit on the table. I wanted to sit on a chair and cross my legs and drink champagne like a grown-up. But she was treating me like a little girl and I had to sit on the table and watch the show. Oh. And then when the acts would come on and she'd say, okay, now sit back down in the chair. And, and she did this four or five times throughout the night. Oh, that's so interesting. I wonder, do you know why? Just because she wanted me to see a better view of the show. Oh, to get higher? Okay. Yeah. Oh but then, back, then she, she took me backstage and left me there. And uh, I'll never forget this. Oh, poor Belinda Smith. If you're listening, I'm sorry. I keep talking about you. We need but to do an interview with her. So let's <laughs> convince her. Of course you do. Um, so I was up at the top level, which is where the principal's dressing rooms were. And there's four flights of steps up from the stage. And um, I was just standing there waiting a bit alone. And then I heard Belinda coming up the stairs and I was a bit transfixed, not knowing really where to put myself because I couldn't go in the dressing rooms because people were showering and changing or something. And then I saw her round the staircase and now she's wearing that pink finale costume that they wore in panache please look it up if you haven't seen it yeah. they've got a conical hairstyle they've got jewels in their hair going high 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 they've got this huge pink costume on with all sorts of darts of pink feathers sticking out and the most amazing thing were these pink leggings with the cutouts the cutaways on the thighs and she's walking up the stairs one at a time quite slowly because I guess she was pooped from coming up from doing the finale and then having to do this four stairs, four, four flights of stairs. And every step she took, I could just see more and more of her and she came up the stairs and I was just transfixed and I couldn't move. And I just thought, and then she was in front of me and then she got taller and taller and taller. And I, like I said before, in my little black dress, I felt like a bit of hot stuff, right? But then I'm in front of Belinda Smith, so that all went out the window. 
<laughs> and she was just making her way to a dressing room, but she just sort of slight, sidled off and said, you're Karina's sister, aren't you? <laughs> oh, that sounds like a movie star moment. It just, yeah, that just it sounds was. like a... And she wow. said exactly like that, you're Karina's sister, aren't you, with that accent. And I went, yes, ma'am. And that oh. was that. I don't know. That just stuck in my mind. The, just the goddess that, you know, she was, that they all were, you know, that everyone was. And I was just there thinking, how do I get to be anything like that? Wow. So did you fly there knowing you weren't going to come back? Or did you have a one-way ticket? Because obviously to fly back and then come back, are you ready to move into Paris? Or were you just like, okay, I've got to yeah, put some I, pieces I, together <laughs> to live here now? It's the kind of thing us, us Aussie girls do. We, we fly there with our, um, our good training and our uh, positive disposition and, <laughs> and, <laughs> no and a contract. <laughs> um, no, I didn't have a contract. I just, I had no idea about coming back. No, that wasn't going to be an issue. Uh, you knew thing. you were going to stay there. You had no, no mm. reason that you're, okay. That's awesome. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what was it like? Contract rehearsing for the Moulin Rouge because you've been watching Rio Valido and now you're in a, did you see the Moulin Rouge show before you went into it? Yes, yes, I saw it. I was so primed, you know, I was just so primed. Um, all those months watching the Lido and I was just so ready and yeah, the audition, I sailed through it. And um, actually on the, on the back of the, the solo audition, Miss Doris put me through. Um, she said, just go and tack on to the back of the principal um, rehearsal that's going on at the moment. And just stay there and I'll come back and get you. And so I, I did. I just tacked on the back of it and I tried to learn a few counts of eight. But I was having a bit of trouble because the styling was very different than what I was used to. I was used to a very sort of ballet jazz style. And at the Moulin, there was a very different style of dance. And I had trouble picking up, you know, the beginnings and the ends of steps. And, and it's just different when you, when you do choreography when you're a child and it's so choreographed. But then in shows, there's a lot of sort of connection steps or presentation steps and things that aren't actually steps. But you know what I mean? There's a lot of yeah, that. Yeah, I had trouble. The nondescript. <laughs> yeah, I had trouble defining what it was I was supposed to do. Anyway, uh, I, I, I thought I was so screwed because about an hour later, I was still there trying to get this couple of counts at eight and not really succeeding. And Miss Doris had apparently forgotten me or, or just, yeah, I thought, I thought it was all over. Um, and then she saw me and she's like, what are you doing? Come here. We've got a contract to sign. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah. So she put me, um, she signed me, I signed a contract. It was a big intake that year. And um, just to make it short, um, I started out a couple of days later in the can-can line, learning how to can-can. And once again, I thought, oh boy, I am so screwed. This can-can is the weirdest thing I've ever done. You have to flex your foot. You have to be on fondue all the time. He's saying, he's saying bend. He's saying kick your head. I didn't understand anything about can-can. It was very strange because it's not what they teach you at school. It's very, very, it's, a, it's an archaic dance from hundreds of years ago. And the technique of the can-can at the Moulin Rouge is its own thing. Well, I remember watching both Cancans, Lido and the Moulin Rouge, and the, the Moulin Rouge has the flex foot, and they kind of bring their head down. And it's then very the, the boisterous. Yeah, and the Lido, I feel like the legs are extended and pointed, and it's, but yeah. I love both of them, but that's interesting, yeah. like, 
I didn't know that's it's that's the traditional, traditional it's a traditional okay. choreography from a hundred years ago and it's that's the you know and that's what a lot of people don't get and when they see it they go whoa why is that so authentic looking because that's what it is it's, it's oh, the cool. original steps but I couldn't really understand it anyway I thought once again uh, I'm ruining this contract and then Miss Doris once again she's like what are you doing up there being a can-can you're a nude and I just went oh thank you dear god <laughs> so, so I um so in in the history of the Moulin, I'm probably the only dancer that never did the can can. <laughs> really? Oh, this probably probably saved your hips and your back for a few more years. Yeah, so did you I never go had in, to do it. You went in as a tall nude. I don't know. Is it similar with the Moulin Rouge as Alito as far as they don't have bluebells, but do they have different names for their lines? It's exactly the same lineup. You've got your covered line, your nude line, your soloist, and your principals. Uh, so yeah, it's all the same. So I just went in as a, a short nude actually, um, because there was a couple of ex Lido girls that were nudes at the Moulin, and uh, I was one of the littler ones. So yeah, but you I was can't happy lie with about that. your. It didn't work to lie about your height anymore, did it? <laughs> no, no. That's when my height suddenly became okay, and uh, a lot of people said to me. No, it's good that you have this height because it's a it's a much more um, manageable height in, in that you'll you'll have more access to more types of jobs than if you were just tall. Then you're very restricted to one thing, and so yeah, I came, I came to be at peace with my height. <laughs> so I know you went on because I already know because you told me to be a principal. <laughs> what was how long did you how long were you in the show before you actually got a principal position, and what was that like? Well, I, uh, as much as my sister and my niece and myself, we all started um, replacing soloist positions pretty much instantly. So I was only two weeks in the show before I had to come back into rehearsals and start to learn all the soloist roles. That's amazing. And that was, that was good because, you know, I wanted to get ahead with that and um, it was great choreography. And uh, so I got put on a roster of replacement, which uh, in those days it was really good. It was a hierarchical, a hierarchical is that how you say it? A hierarchical, hierarchical <laughs> system. <laughs> Call it whatever you want. Hierarchical. That's a hard we were on a hierarchy. So I was the third replacement soloist. Now that meant that um, there were three soloist girls and a nude. Uh, sorry, three, get this right. Three soloist girls and a principal and Debbie Dekujo, who was the singer. Now, all of those five girls um, had a day off. So if you were the first replacement, you were doing it all the time. You were doing it on each of those five days, and then you had your day off, and then one day a week you were nude, oh, and so on and so forth. So when one of those girls, any one of those girls, had a, a holiday, suddenly you were bumped up to second replacement, um, principal soloist uh, hmm. replacement, yeah. So that was good. So you just knew where you stood. And when one of them left, the first replacement soloist got the role. It was, an, it was a, just taken for granted that you would be promoted and contracted. Yeah. So everything was very well understood. And it cut out a lot of the backstage, you know, um, rivalries that go on. It just cut it out because it was all cut and dried. Who was going where? So, um, but nothing was moving <laughs> and I was really waiting for something to move on and nothing did. So I sort of languished in this third replacement soloist situation for some time. And, um, and then we did a new show 
and um, Debbie, uh, David Kudrow stayed on and Diane McDonald came in, who was my, my new idol, you know, <laughs> she, she was my everything. And, and I also just stalked her and watched everything she did. And I had known that she, this was a woman who, no matter where she went, she was contracted as lead in any show she was doing. She was the lead. It was her reputation that preceded her. And this type of thing was something I really aspired to, the fact that you could create this place in the world where when someone was opening a show, they would call upon you to be the new lead. So I thought that was incredible. And um, I learned a lot from her, even if she, Diane didn't really feel like she taught me anything. I learned just by looking at her and understanding and being around her and um, sometimes she pushed me she pushed me on stage for my first time as principal because she wanted her day off <laughs> <laughs> and I said but I'm not ready and she said oh, of course you are and um, stuff like that so I have her to thank for pushing me across those lines and and then once again I was just waiting for an opening which was a little bit slow in coming so in that time I auditioned for Pierre at the Lido once again uh, I put an adagio act together because I had my, my ballet and my point work and I liked being lifted and I, and I wanted to, to have a solid role in the world. And I was a little bit bored of waiting for that at the Moulin. Um, but Pierre was kind of like, you know, what am I going to do? You're too small. Um, the contract was already given anyway to Kathy and James Taylor. They were already contracted for the new show. Uh, there was all these roles already made all around them. Um, Kathy did comedy. She was incredible. And I, I wanted to be her replacement. I thought that would be a good role. But in the end, um, Pierre sort of just made the decision for me. He said, this is all very nice, but what am I going to do with you on all the other days, on the other five days when, okay, Kathy's off once a week. Yeah, you do it once a week, but now what am I going to do with you? You're too small for the line. He said, hang around at the mall and I'm sure good things will come, I'm sure, he said. So thanks, Pierre, for that. <laughs> because shortly after that, then I was made principal at the mall. So did you, you got to see Karina in the show before you went in. Did she come and see you as the principal or did she see you in the show? It's how fun to see your sister that you'd idolize to come see you now on the stage. Yeah, what was that she, like? was, she was like my Stedford mom, you know, in Australia we have these Stedfords. <laughs> competition so she came and watched the first show and she sat at um the column which is the the good position at the mall and they, they describe it as the where the boss sits in the clerico seat so she sat there and i did my first night as principal and you know funnily enough i thought well i'm never going to do this ever again this is a real coup i'm a third replacement um soloist and a, probably a fifth replacement principal I'd better get this on video. So I had it videoed and and I just, in my head, I said, well, this is the first and last time I'll ever be lead at the Moulin Rouge or anywhere. So I, I documented it. And, um, and Karina watched it from the back there. And, um, and then on the second show, I came out a little bit more relaxed and I did my sexy movement in the front where my hands run all down my body and then down the length of my leg, right down to my instep. And then I linger and then I look down and right at my feet was my sister gushing, <laughs> clapping like a little oh. kid going, yeah! 
Bye. And I was like, I can't sell sex to my sister. <laughs> what are you doing there? And she'd, she'd been, um, I think Mr. Luke had, had put her in the front row and she watched the show from there second. So she watched two in a row. <laughs> well, you had said something about, comp you know, it can be competition between sisters and sometimes people can almost want to pit you against each other because you're in the biggest shows in Paris and you're both like very yeah, highly I guess, esteemed. Um, I guess there was always this assumption, even right back in the ballet world, in the dancing school world, that um, that we had to sort of be a competition with one another because we were so similar and we did the similar job and, and danced in a similar way. But we were both enormous fans of one another. <laughs> so and none of that worked. Um, everyone, every, everyone would sort of... Um, expect that there was some kind of jealousy or sister rivalry but there just was none um if someone said to me oh that was good but your sister would have done it better i would just totally agree and say yeah i know she's amazing <laughs> and um, and then vice versa <laughs> it feels like there's so much room in your family to acknowledge and celebrate each other that savannah is like karina's daughter who's doing the show <laughs> and then yeah and like that you guys can all I think we talked about this and maybe it was Savannah's and Karina's together that your stories aren't weird to each other because you've lived it. But when you tell this to other people that don't know what that life was like, they probably just goes right over their head, but you guys have similar yeah, stories and overlapping stories. And when, when now that Savannah, those stories you might've told her before, she's living that like, Oh, I, I can see this because I'm living it. Like how fun that you have this all throughout your families and your husband was also, yeah, my husband performer? is an acrobat from seventh generation circus family called the Nickelodeons. So they did all the major venues in Europe and, and they did Vegas and Atlantic City and Reno and Dunes and Harris and Frederick Apka shows in general. And uh, so he knew all about that. So, you know, being married to someone who's completely, and he was 16 when he was doing that. He was wow. hitting Vegas in the strip back in the day when it was, you know, what everyone remembers. And um, so that's, I, I think it's nice to be with a partner who has the full understanding of the, of the, the lineage that you speak of a lot. And, uh, and even he understood very much the dancer side and, and was just so, praising the amazing American showgirls in their in their shows in their, the lounge shows and Frederick Atkar shows and Ron Lewis shows in general and just how hard they worked and how incredible they were and what women they were once again you know going back to being such women and um and just falling on the floor dripping and puffing and panting after routines and and all this sort of stuff amazing amazing women and he he you know he he actually he didn't well, I guess he did advise me a lot as well because he'd probably seen more than me by the time I'd met him. We met very young. I was 18, he was 23, but he was professional at nine. So he oh would have gosh. seen, <laughs> he was wow. a child prodigy. So he was professional at nine and he would have seen everything um, that there was to see because he did it all the greatest venues. So yeah, by the time he came to Paris, it was all part and parcel. He, he won the the Monte Carlo Circus Festival Award when he was 13. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he advised me a lot. He'd say, you know, do this and do that. And he, he, he totally got it. Sometimes if I'd be on stage with my partner and we were maybe doing like a love scene or a sexy scene or something like that, and I'd see him in the wings, you know, I'd start to tone it down a little bit. Not that he was a jealous type, but I would sort of 
you know, back off a bit. And then I'd come back off stage and, and he'd say, what was that? You know, and I'd think, oh, what, was it too sexy? And he's like, no, like, get into it. What are you backing off for? That was, you know, ramp it up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When did you marry him? Were you, in, were you a dancer at the Moulin Rouge and you guys were married or were you just dating? Yeah, we just married somewhere along the lines. I can't really remember when. Was he performing as well? Oh, God, were... yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the longest running um, act at the Moulin Rouge. He did seven years with his acrobatic act and seven years with his um, comedy acrobatic act. Oh, my gosh. There's, <laughs> I keep saying that I need to do a movie. with and keep, The movie's getting bigger because of all these, conne- like, just yours and your husband's stories, and you got Karina and Savannah and Karina's dad. And, and yeah, the, Savannah's how... been immersed in it. Getting back to your question, Savannah's been immersed in it. Um, I mean, so by the time Savannah was 16, she'd already traveled to Europe several times, she'd seen everything, everything there is to see. Um, when I was a little tiny, when she was a little tiny girl, she came to watch me do lead in the casino show here in Australia. And um, there was a moment where I used to come tip tapping on stage in a cappella way with the whole cast on stage watching my feet. And, and I'd come out in the silence going tick 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 And she stood on the she stood up on her little you know flip up chair um and she was about two and she screamed as loud as you like for the entire thousand five hundred audience to hear auntie elisa because that's the cute little name that she calls me so she stopped the show and the whole cast were just losing it and laughing oh that's so (laughs) So good talk about being immersed in it you know and she used to brush yeah. my long wigs backstage when she'd stand on my on my my desk and, and brush my wigs and so she's oh. just always been in it so whether oh you like gosh. it or not you know and, and and plus that I mean that set aside I mean she's physically and and technically and and everything beautifully um you know made for it and yeah. she loves it yeah. and and she's a Lido girl and she was kind of born that way and and she likes her job as well, you know, there was no pushing. And uh, it's funny to hear her story, actually, when she mentioned she wasn't sure about what she wanted to do because we were all like, well, <laughs> it's painfully obvious. But, you know, you, you can't really impose that on that. And if she wanted to be a lawyer or something, then that was, you know, that was her choice. But it seemed pretty obvious. So, yeah, when I go and see her in Paris and I have seen her work, it's it's all very comfortable and just natural for me we know what she's going to look like before she does oh huh hmm. that's beautiful so how long did you do the moulin rouge how long did, how many con- was so it contracts i did you- three shows fum 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 for me dub fairy i opened the fairy which is the current show um i did 12 years of for me dub so i did that show over seven thousand six hundred times oh. and that near killed me but it it's people always ask me how did I do that and I I, the answer is I just don't know how I did it I just did it I just day by day I worked I did it I did it in an effort to be better every single day um I watched my show back on the video every single night really um yeah I watched the video footage especially if I was doing some new corrections or something and I'd correct myself so the next show I went on I'd have something to do so I just made it. Um, I made it all about growth. And um, when I when I couldn't find anything new to do, I'd go and watch the Lido, or I'd go and watch the Crazy Horse or the Parody Latin, 
I'd spend my nights off watching other shows, watching other people, getting inspiration. And, and I'm a real nerd. <laughs> I, well, I think, yeah, there's, there, I think that's rare. Cause I feel like I've worked with people who are really good, but once you've got it down, I, I feel like, well, especially when I was a blue belt, I feel like a lot of us were taking class. We were always doing, there was extra jobs, but then I did other shows where I think people think, well, I, I've made it. And then they just party and drink and they don't, really have it in them to be better because I think well I've arrived and I feel like this I've heard this from a lot of bluebell dancers but yours is unique too that you're actually watching mm -hmm. video and yeah yeah you we, we had the video we had the video set up and um and the you know it was back in the days when it was just new to have videos set up so you could get a cassette down and yeah it was only just the little cctv footage but it, for me it was enough to see lines and stuff and um see how it was heading and don't forget um I had all that background of all these great, great, great principles. Also, Herma Voss, I wanted to mention Herma Voss and my sister Karina and, and these principles who just were such like icons that led me forward. And I, I still had them sort of emblazoned on my memory and I, I still could look at my video and go, okay, you're just not there yet. You've still got to do this, 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 this. And, and, I, and I sort of had that standard to try and push towards. And, and um, I'd often be at home on my night off and um, setting up my video camera and just practicing anything, singing. Um, I wanted to be a singer, so I'd practice my singing or just I'd dress up some way and try a new character or I'd just constantly working on, um, you know, what I, what I could bring or how I could change, how I could de develop as an artist. And then if I was um, on my night off, often I'd just go, oh, I'm just going to put on an outfit and go and watch the second show. So I'd go to work on my day really? off and watch the second show. And I'd just waltz in. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even call it in or anything. I'd just go, hello, come watch the show. And they'd say, sure, and they'd just put me in a chair. Um, but that's something no one does. From what I hear, it's not even allowed anymore. You're not supposed to be in the, you know, oh and You're not supposed to be in the workplace on your day off and all this sadness. Um, for me, work was a place of pleasure and, and inspiration. It wasn't, you know, oh. I, wa I wanted to get better at it. Did you ever feel like you got to where you wanted to be or was it always elusive, like a little bit ahead of where you were? Did you get to ever sit in it and go, this feels like this is where I need to be? Or was there always something well, else? Funnily, it's funny you should say that because no. And then <laughs> because once you have, it's all over, right? But um, there was a photo shoot that I did. Um, I'd already announced that I was leading, leaving the Moulin Rouge and it came as a, a big crushing surprise to a lot of people, except for me. But um, in that space of time between the, the time I announced that I was leaving and the day that I left, this space of time was something very special for me. It was only a couple of months, but in that time I just felt such serenity and I did a photo shoot in that time. And for me, it was my best photo shoot. You know, when I just felt like I was, I had arrived. I had done what I'd set out to achieve in that place. And then I was going on to new goals, but as an artist. But um, I remember looking at these photos going, I just look how I want to look, how I always wanted to look. Oh. Yeah. So it was nice. It was a nice closure for me. Yeah. You look beautiful. So you just knew you were done and you're, 
did you yeah, go my back work as... was done there my, my work was done there you know I, I still wanted to develop as an entertainer but I felt like there was nothing more for me to do at the Moulin Rouge um, there had been some really beautiful things happen in my time there and and those those very special key moments in my life had happened and I wasn't going to get them back so there was no point sort of dwelling on that any longer. Um, I wanted to mention that one day uh, René Gruau, the, the artist, the famous artist, he came to the Moulin Rouge and nobody really even knew who he was amongst the dancers, but I was there. Can you imagine? I was like, this man is my idol and I have to go and tell him. So um, once again, as I did with this um, Bluebells Forever interview, I bummed my way in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And I said, can I please take a picture with Monsieur Gruau? And so I stood beside him and I tried to do my best Gruau sort of stance. And I said to him while the photograph was being taken or set up, I said to him, Monsieur Gruau, and I said in French, vous m'avez inspiré de faire ce que je fais. And he said, au contraire, mademoiselle, c'est vous qui m'inspirez. So I said to him, Mr. Gruau, you inspired me to be what I am today. And he said to me, on the contrary, Mademoiselle, it is you that inspires me. Oh, okay, that gave me that gave me goosebumps. Oh my gosh! I've got goosebumps even just thinking about it. It was full closure for me. I had arrived. You know, these were things where I thought to myself, "Okay, girl, you've arrived." I'm actually yeah. crying right now. Um, yeah, so things like that. When I saw this photograph of me, I was like, "Okay, you can leave this place now. Your job here is done. Now go do something else." Wow. I feel like when some people try to hang on and they hang on too long and then you kind of feel yourself going down as other people come up, that's going to mm -hmm. be so heartbreaking. But when you've done, I've done what I came to do. I, yeah, I'd seen it And happen. then to have the I, affirmation from him, that's like, yeah. okay. And also from Diane, Diane McDonald graciously said lovely things to me as did Belinda Smith. And I, for me, these were, and then my sister as well, she came and saw the show um, as, and she said to me, just enjoy this while you've got it because it goes and she said i left it too early and i regret and she said just you're amazing out there just stay here as long as you can so these things that these ladies said to me um really stuck and one of my big idols also was herma voss and she um opened ali lido and she was uh the principal and she was a real technician as they all were um, Hammer got a really great opportunity uh, after she'd left the Lido to become the star of the Parody Latin. She developed an incredible role over there for herself, where um, she was really the original crazy horse girl, I gotta say, because she was a real tall girl, fabulous training, you couldn't fault her, beautiful. Um, I believe Lester Stallone was chasing after her at the time. Oh, really? <laughs> And she just created this incredible role. So if, if anyone can ever pull up Herma Voss doing um, Parody Latin, that's uh, something incredible. And so, and I ended up later on in life becoming a producer and I actually employed Herma to be really? um, the star of the show that I was um, needing a replacement for. So that and was a real full circle as well. Wow. And I want to get to that too, but I want to go back because there's something when we were talking earlier. Sorry, I jump around a lot. <laughs> No, and I do too. And it's hard because that's how we, it's how people talk. We don't talk like, here's my <laughs> timeline. But you were talking 
it was two different contrasts. You were talking about all the celebrities that came through the show, but then you also talked about just after the show when the, you know, the work lights come up, like there's, oh, there's so, and I, I felt yeah. like I felt it in my body because I forgot those parts. Like, I think I shared with yeah. you when I went to Hello Hollywood, I wanted to see the stage door because then I could remember how I walked in and all those parts are kind of blurry. When you talked about that part, I go, I mm. fully remembered in my body what it was like after the show and the hanging out. Not, you don't just do the show and yeah. run out. Can you tell no, both that's parts right. of that? Like, like you said, like you said, um, you know, people don't usually go and watch the show and people don't get to see the show that they're in. They're simply doing the show. So the show for us is looking out to the audience yeah. and, yeah. and it's backstage, all the hustle and bustle that goes on with um, all the crazy stuff that goes on backstage, which is a show in itself. Yeah. And then it's after the show. It's the dressing rooms. This is for us. This is our life. So um, that's the interesting part for me. And, yes, walking into the Lido or walking out of the Lido um, with my sister and and in those couple of months that I was there, um, you know, the, the, the apes, the monkeys were also walking out. Um, you know, so you'd sort of have to wait, wait in the line to, well, the monkeys walked out, things like that. Or the elephants were being, um, bring, being brought up on the transporter and putting into their floats or the horses or, or all these things, you know, but most of the time there was a lot of partying going on. Um, people were never in a rush to leave work. Um, I, I used to love it when I'd be always waiting around, as I said, but the lights, the, the work lights would come on and the whole showroom would be lit up with these white floodlights, which is, you know, showing every stain on the carpet and at every yeah. blemish. But um, at that point, they would bring the ice up, you know, because the ice needed working on and someone would come and lie on the stage and someone would give them a massage and then the champagne would be started, all the extra, like, offloaded champagne that the patrons didn't drink it was just <laughs> given to us so I mean Yo, every man. night there was sort of multiple glasses of moe and um and then just hanging out doing that and hours and hours and hours nobody left there was no there was no oh I think that's what's kind of ruined it is right that, that you didn't need to be watched all the time we were responsible grown-ups who could manage ourselves and if there needed to be a uh, an adagio replacement rehearsal they'd just do it it didn't need to be the stage manager they're watching um if the ice needed to be um cut or something they'd just jump on the ice and do it or yeah things like that there's Could something that just feels so relaxed of that hanging out after there's no hurry to just get out of there and just i, I can yeah. picture that it just feels so yeah. good of what it was like just to hang out without your costumes on and just be your normal people that just yeah. had celebrities. Can you, you named a bunch of people. And I feel like well, there's a lot of crossover oh boy, of some of these celebrities of, that came to a lot it, of our shows. Well, they were all just part of the circuit, weren't they? And they were doing their circuit, which usually involved being part of the jet set. And the jet set were very much about going to the shows. And um, the jet set's a thing of the past now. Um, you know, unfortunately, little stars big stars they don't really feel the need to be seen at the Lido anymore necessarily although they do sometimes come for inspiration because you've seen and and I keep having to point this out you have seen the Kylie Minogue's and the Beyonce's and um well we had Latoya Jackson work with us she and uh, they, they physically come and watch the show and take inspiration from it because they don't have the ability to put on a show like ours they don't have the budgets to put on a yeah. show like ours. Yeah. 
and uh, Kylie Minogue came and, and wanted to be in the Lido, but she was too little, and, she, and so she, she at least managed to hire a whole bunch of costumes and put them in her show. But, you know, there's a lot of takeaways um, from the big celebrities these days, which are from our shows, and any given night, you know, oh, there's Liza Minnelli or whoever. Um, so, but um, we, the one particular one we had was the uh, centenary of the Moulin Rouge. So in 1889, it opened in 1989, we celebrated the centenary, which was a big fanfare. And uh, we had Ella Fitzgerald come and sing with Ray Charles. And we had uh, Lauren Bacall and Jane Russell and Esther Williams and Dorothy Lamour, who was very funny backstage going, don't stand too close to me, dear. You're going to pull my beads with your fishnets and, <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. And Charles Aznavour. And it was, it was, it was completely nuts because we had to be in the whole day rehearsing to be beside Donald O'Connor or whoever was dancing. Um, and it was completely and utterly nuts that, that you could cram so many, not celebrities, not stars, I'm talking screen legends, yeah, into one yeah. place. And then backstage is tiny at the Moulin Rouge and I'm there in my huge feather backpack. So it's going a metre 50 this direction, metre 50 that direction. Boobs are out and I'm trying to navigate through a huddle of screen legends. And I'm just going, civil play, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I'm very sorry, I'm very sorry. And then at one point, Charles Aznavour got so fed up with all the being bashed in the face by feathers, and then he went and stood under a shelf, because <laughs> he was so tiny, he could manage to stand under a shelf, and, and things like this. And then the, the, all those amazing entertainers, and look, they all, they all moved in the same world as us. Let's face it, you know, if you listen to Pete Menefee's podcast, which I loved, um, because I, let's face it, I got into this gig for the costumes, first and yes, foremost. Yes. So Pete's really resonated with me. Um, and I, to think that all of those megastars took that rickety little backstage staircase that if you, if you shook it a few times, it might fall apart. And they went up that staircase and they went across that perilous little one foot ledge where you could actually fall to your death. And they went across hanging on to the bits of wires and things that, you know, there's nothing to hang on to. And they went down our staircase to bow. You know, they all did that with us that night. And unbelievable. Except oh, Ella Fitzgerald, who had to be sort of um, wheelchaired on. But, you know, that that's just how we were rolling. And... Lauren Bacall, just to see her, oh, glowing presence, you know. But more recently, Kate Blanchett um, decided that she was, she needed to research a role that she was going to be a showgirl in. So she watched the show and I didn't know who she was at the time. She was nominated for an Oscar for Elizabeth at that moment. And she watched the show and she glows. She actually glows. Um, she was in the front glowing. I said, who's that? And all the dancers said, that's Kate Blanchett. And I said, okay, I don't know who that is, but anyway. <laughs> um, and then the next night she she had sort of organised to be backstage and because she wanted to research a sh what a showgirl looks like really and what they do and how the mannerisms are and everything. And because I was the only one that had a dressing room of any size that she could sort of be out of the way with all that dangerous backstage stuff, she sat with me for two shows and just chatted about, what it is we do and watched from the door and she's like see I want those big eyelashes they keep telling me to have these pretty little eyelashes but no I want the big ones like you 
because they're grotesque up, front, up close they're very grotesque but on stage they look great <laughs> and I want them to be like that and she's like what are you doing there with your eyes you know really? <laughs> yeah so I think it was a movie called a man, um, the man who cried I think I never actually saw it but she oh, sent a, you know, a beautiful bunch of flowers to me the next day and it was very lovely. Liza Minnelli was always so gracious and so complimentary and so such a darling to everybody, you know. Um, we were all there crushing to be in her presence and she was crushing to be in our presence. She's like, please let me go backstage. I want to say thank you to them, and, you know, and all. And, like, of course, the leader had all of those people too. You said something <laughs> beforehand and it was we were talking about, like, what, now virtual everything is kind of what it's doing to show business and the illusion yeah. of being set up on a pedestal that people, can you say that you were talking yeah. about selfies well, I mean, and it really hit me strongly okay. because we're in this place where we could lose the magic or we can maybe reclaim oh. the magic. Oh, we, we've lost a lot of magic. We don't idolize anybody anymore because we're too busy looking at our phones and looking at ourselves and taking the next selfie. So you know, we used to idolise the great stars of the world, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Whitney Houston, whoever you idolise, Liza Minnelli, um, Bette Midler, whoever you idolise, we, we wholeheartedly dream about those people. And if you were, I always say it's a bit of a mistake to meet your, meet your idols um, because, you know, they're people at the end of the day and sometimes you're disappointed. Um, but... Uh, having the opportunity to really put someone else on a pedestal and dream about them, look up to them and go pay hundreds of dollars to see them um, and, and do all that. We're sort of deprived of that now because everyone's equal and everyone's a superstar on Facebook. And, and that's a shame because I don't really want to know about this voyeuristic way of watching my stars. You know, in particular, my main star is Whitney Houston. And I, and I, I just love to dream of her in her prime. You know, it's a shame that I, that I even know about the reality of what happened to her, her sad life. So um, one of our producers used to really, really get his back up when we used to have backstage documentaries going on, of which we had a lot. And, um, and I, I struggled with it at first as well. How do you break that? that boundary and let someone into your intimate dressing room and they, they want to see you real and, and I don't really want to show you me real. I, I, I prefer the, the flashy version. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's something, you know, like when the, you're all beautiful, like every everyone they hired, if you're in a blue, you're a blue belt, you're, you've got beauty going for you, but you still don't show your raw. It's like they see you on that pedestal, even the fact that we're elevated on stairs with the makeup, and then if they watched you walk out, they, I think I was telling this in another one, like sometimes boys would be waiting there with their flowers. We'd walk right past them because they're waiting yeah. for those girls. We're like, yeah. oh yeah, just keep waiting. They'll be out. But, never but there is, a, I think people want that. They want to see this thing that's elevated that's, that they can't quite attain or have. They can't have those girls definitely. as their girlfriends. Yeah, I just think we, even like everybody's a YouTube teacher. Like I run a dance studio and some people like, I'm just going to learn on YouTube or on what all the ways are now virtually taking and our dance studio is going to go away or are people going to be like, I really miss that live interaction. I miss live theater because if we only are going to go to virtual, I have a feeling that we're going to be just so flat. There's oh just going to be no dimension. Dimension. Yeah. Because when you've got that real person in front of you and you're watching them 
on stage. I mean, there was nothing that could replace being in the front row at the Lido and watching six foot girls wear, wear two meter costumes in a, a top um, eight centimeter heels with 10 centimeter heels and being down the bottom there. And you no, know, you don't have to be famous, but to you have to be un, unattainable, unattainable goddess. And all of us managed to be that at one time in our lives. And being in this show, these types of shows, it's it's just amazing to have one moment in your life where you were that good because everyone trains for it. But unless you get into some of these really prestigious shows, you never quite have that real, you know, nurturing and being put on that pedestal and wearing those amazing costumes because um, they're that expensive and they're that good. And so I, I love looking at everybody's Facebooks from across the eras because most people will have that picture of themselves from whatever year it was and they'll have it there and and it's so precious to them because that's when they look the best they ever will look oh my gosh when i think of even how you idolize like karina and and um, belinda because if you didn't have that you probably wouldn't have raised yourself up to that level because you need to see somebody that's above you i think when you're at your dance studio and like I remember being in the advanced class at 12 just because everybody else graduated so now you're the ones everybody looks up to and then there's no one yeah. else to look up to then I moved to Vegas yeah. and I went oh we were literally looking up yeah literally looking up yeah because I was like I'm short and I'm five foot nine but I just feel like I it, it's really beautiful to have those people that you do idolize not in a way that they can't fall because it feels like you obviously knew they were humans and they had their regular human <laughs> capacity yeah. but also it's wonderful like well what am I striving for yeah it's just how do they get from being that to that I never forget going backstage on the first day watching the show at Moorland that I was going to be in and watching Elaine Thomas who was the principal and she was such a vivacious captivating entertainer so dazzling she had this smile and perkiness and and uh, the spotlight used to close in on her beautiful lips and Oh boy, you know, and, and then I went backstage and that same person came out of the shower. Well, she walked straight past me. I didn't bat an eyelid, you know, just, I could never have fathomed that that was the same person. And I didn't want to, I, I, I wanted just to stay on that, that role. And how do you get from that to that? You know, there's a long distance between popping out of the shower, <laughs> the you look coming out of the shower to what you looked at like on the stage and, and all of that work and everything you learn goes into that final image. And it's so rich and it's so, it's so cult cultured and, and it's, it nurtures me. I, it literally feeds me. I remember watching an episode of Sex and the City or something. Oh no, no, it was an interview with, um, with, uh, What's her name? Carrie Bradshaw, um, the the actress. But anyway, she said when Jessica she was Park, uh, Jessica Sarah Parker. Yes, yes, that's her. Yes, I can't get her name ever. But she said when she was down and out and poor and trying to get castings and and jobs that she had no money or even anywhere to live. But she would spend the, what money she had on buying a Vogue because she felt it nurtured her more. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that also when in a lot of show business or dance worlds that people are competitive with the ones that are better than them. And you hear girls even say flippantly like, Oh, you're so beautiful. I hate you. Or you're so good. I hate you. Mm. Which there's a weird thing to pit yourself against someone that you want to be like, instead of like, Oh, I want, mm. I aspire to be that where I feel like 
that also the whole YouTube and the whole selfie thing. It's like, I am this. So what am I, what do I, mm. if this is as good as it gets. That's, that's as far as you go. Yeah. Like well, attitude I feel it. like you need to tell people I, I go, you know, for me, internet was a nice thing because it, it gave me an opportunity to go around telling everybody, <laughs> namely, <laughs> namely Belinda and Diane once again, um, sorry girls. Um, about how they influenced my life. And uh, even as far as, you know, finding people I saw in West End shows or Broadway shows and finding them and saying to them, oh, my God, you influenced my life and this is why, this, this and this and this that you did. And thank you. And just having an opportunity to say thank you to the, the great lineage of women that, um, that went through all these amazing establishments and, and made the very best of their youth and their beauty. And, and yes, we, we, we're lovely to one another now. I don't know about any of that because there was never much jealousy or anything backstage more. And it was all, we loved one another hard. Yeah. Mm. And then to think of how many young dancers looked at you in that same way you look into those leaders. And I don't know that you can actually ever really take that in that somebody else was looking at you and telling the story like marissa she was so beautiful or so womanly isn't that weird that you can sometimes they write to me and they say well you did this and this and i i know i'm thinking oh my god i have no recollection of saying that sounds like something i'd say but i have no recollection of saying that but they're telling me that that changed their life that day or all these things and i go okay well i was just being me that day but uh, once again, it's just being passed on from people who gave it to me. So I just feel like it's passing through me. I don't take any credit, um, but I just love it so much. Me, the girls, what you were, what they are, what they're going to be. And I just want that to survive and and remain as we all do and um, and pass it down. It's a, it's a heritage. Well, and as soon as we got on Zoom, I realized I need to have a background. Like I just have my same old thing and nobody sees on the podcast, but you have this exquisite picture of your head and you were in the center. So I didn't see you. I saw these two beautiful showgirls next to you. And then you moved your head. I'm like, Oh, that's you. And that's recent. So we're going to wrap up here because, um, but this is a great way to end it because we were talking about these things going away. You are a part of, of preserving. So can you tell what you're doing now and who, these gorgeous girls, because some people may have seen the post that Savannah did about the audition for the um, oh, okay. Cabaret de Paris. Well, Cabaret de Paris. So um, many productions here in Australia gone by and they're all sort of closing down, closing down. Um, but my producer reached out to me and said, hey, let's not close down, let's start up and bring back. And um, that's what we're doing. So all those great shows that we had in Australia are long forgotten. And uh, now we've got an opportunity for young dancers to come and see this show, Cabaret de Paris, which is based upon myself. And we've got um, only a small cast of eight, but really fabulous dancers. And, and all the dancers really have to really be principal dancers, if you know what I mean, because yeah. on a big stage and only eight girls, each one has to really be something um so definitely an amazing lineup and and we we have all these wonderful australian dancers because it's an australian production but oftentimes it's girls that have been in paris and come back or maybe they're on the way to paris and we we get them before they go and so um the caliber is there you know and um 
so seven years we've been doing it. It just started out as a little event that we were going to trial and then it, it took off, it stuck. And yes, we were told again and again that showgirls are passe and nobody wants it anymore and we want avant-garde and we want soleil type things and I, I don't know and we and all of us were just going no we want this we want to do this the girls are telling me they want to do this the audience is saying when are the shows coming back um so we're doing what we can in a very small way in the hope that there's a culture you know revives, revives well, i was in culture. vegas for the end of jubilee i went to see the show but i think it was a lot of the big production shows when i had gone to vegas off and on to visit friends when I was doing other shows. And there was one Cirque show, I think it was um, Mystere was the first one and it was such a novel thing. So there's all the big production shows and one Cirque and then all of a sudden it's half and half and it's all Cirque. So if you go to Vegas, what you're gonna see seven Cirque shows and there's no other option mm -hmm. for the production shows. So the yeah. fact that like we don't, but there's enough of them when <laughs> they tour. Like, yeah, there's enough. It's doing. a style and, and we need all the styles. We need to be eclectic yes. and have everything. We need to have this and we need to have that. And we don't need to have just one. And, and even Cirque shows, of course, they have many styles. Um, yeah, they're beautiful. This is but what we do. Yeah. I, as soon as I do. saw that picture, I got all excited because I, I think I probably announced it 10 times on my podcast because I was so excited. Oh, I was I'm putting looking, together... I'll put this. I'll put this photograph out for you to post. But yeah. you see the crowns that they're wearing. So yeah. those are from the '60s, from the Folie Berger. They're they're hand me downs. Really? You know, we nobody can afford to make something like that anymore. Oh no! If if you're very lucky, you can obtain them. Um, you know, tenth hand. But, yeah. Um, but they shine like the first day. And oh, the rest beautiful. of the costume I make myself, and I make them with my own hands and lovingly. But um, the girls, I know how wonderful I feel when I'm dressed this way. And I want the young girls to feel that way. I want them to just be dead set in love with themselves. And I can, I, I make the costumes on me because pretty much everyone fits into the same costume. Uh, and when they put them on, I see them just start to live. And oh. my job is done. You know, yeah, I'm just so happy for them and look at them. Oh, they're amazing. And you had said something that you're, you're in the center there. You are the star of the show, but you're kind of ready to hand it down. You want them to step into that place. Like you said, I really want them really... to step up. I want them to challenge me. I want them to be, yeah. I want them to hustle, you know, I want them to be larger than life and they feel it, you know, these girls, they, they just watch me, I'm backstage, I'm coming off, I'm coming on, I can sense they're watching me, they're, they're trying to ascertain once again what it is they're supposed to be doing. And they also bring their own delightful personalities. And the, you know, they're, they're, they're trained to the eyeballs, like why shouldn't they be there, they're beautiful. Like, so that is so inspiring. And it feels like you're, you're doing it as a gift. I mean, obviously it's like, this is really fun for you, but there's something of wanting to so much. It's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like the body's like, this. But, but the fact that you are um, graciously handing it down, because I feel like, you know, I keep doing examples mm -hmm. that many of us maybe have been apart where somebody's jaded or they don't want to turn over their stardom or they feel threatened by the up and coming. But I feel like so many of these bluebells I've talked to are so gracious of wanting to see this next generation get to step into this and you want to bless them in it instead of like try to keep them mm. below. And I don't, I feel like that's only certain parts of the entertainment world they've been a part of, but I, 
I do yeah, feel like no, all we, the bluebells are like that. Yeah, I know. I know. At the Moorland was always a place of love and generosity, and Billy Goodson was our choreographer, and that's how he rolled. And I tell you what, it was refreshing to come into that where suddenly the vibe was just so tender. His words were poised. They were well weighed. They were few. He speaks very carefully to you. Um, he nurtures you. And so that's how I grew up in the, in the Moulin Rouge. And that's what I hope to sort of continue on because I believe you get more that way out of dancers. Dancers are disciplines yeah. enough. You don't need to dish on them or treat them hard. They're hard on themselves. Yeah. But if you give them some motivation to know why they're, they're doing their hand this way, to know why they're popping their hip this way, and just the tiny things and understand when they go on stage that they're informed and motivated, um, then suddenly you've got um, a real entertainer on your hands. I, I started out um, at, the, at the casino here where we live in, in, in Australia. There, I was company manager there and I came in and in a sort of a space of time. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll try and wrap it up. But I came in at a time when there was a lot of just basically regimented rehearsals going on. And the first thing I did was I, I cancelled the rehearsal schedule, which was two or three times a week. Um, these girls were getting hammered for counts. And I cancelled it and they didn't like it, man. <laughs> Let me tell you. Direction was going, why would you do that? The captain was going, what am I going to do? And uh, I said, we cancel rehearsals and we wait. And I watched the show every night and I waited and I waited one week, two weeks, three weeks. By four weeks, I started to see personalities arising. Five, six weeks in, I saw established women dancing, personalities were evolving. By the eighth week, things got a little sloppy. So then I said, okay, let's have a rehearsal. Oh, that's <laughs> let's really keep that. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. So we're <laughs> at the end and and the audience, whoever's listening, can't see it. But I have, I write in front of me because I was trying to think what I oh. could use. I didn't plan on this. This is my diffuser, but I have this stick. Oh. So on, on the screen, I'm now going to knight you <laughs> a bluebell, an official bluebell. I have no power. I have no authority. But I deem you a bluebell forever. I hope I talked enough about the bluebells. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that, they, that there's a parallel that's really great, that you could have the Moulin Rouge and the and the um, Lido side by side with two sisters that are, are in the limelight and supporting each other. And yeah, we, I think that's a beautiful part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, the next reunion, and, we, and because I will thank Lindsay every episode for putting that reunion together, the next one we can, and you can get all just you guys, your family on the stage and do your own show. I'll be the little one. I'll be the little one. I never forget coming out, <laughs> coming out of Moulin one night and um, I'd arranged to meet a bunch of my friends. So there was Debbie DeCujo standing beside her male dancer, Glenn, who was six foot six. And then there was a bunch of other Lido dancers all standing together. I was going out with them all and they were standing there in their civilians looking like regular people to me, you know. And then the rest of the world walked by and I just could see... <laughs> All these little people walking by, and I was like, "Oh my God! Look at my friends! They're all amazing." Yeah. <laughs> and you don't you don't realize that when you're only with tall people, and then you go out into the public and say, "I can see the tops of everyone's heads." That's great. I always wanted to be tall, and I and I promote tall dancers all the time. I always want tallies with me. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, this was wonderful. I really am. Oh, now the cat is chasing the dog. <laughs> Everything went flying. And we made it through almost the whole interview without some chaos from the animals. Um, great. I'm Thank so you. glad you reached out because I would not know that that story and i'm so grateful it was really wonderful and i think just your generosity yeah, you. for what you're what you're bringing to the next uh generation of dancers we we want to empower them we want to encourage them and if it takes all of us like working a little bit harder to bring these shows back because i do think that when people get to see this thing they don't even know is a thing because they've never experienced it in these decades in between they don't that know it could be thing. yeah it mm. could be like a new and beautiful to them because they've never seen it and open up another maybe realm for tall dancers oh, to have more people that watch, watch our show they, they they just come in on a whim thinking well i don't know what this is you know and they, they tell us we get letters one time <laughs> funny story one time i got a letter from um a, a bloke a guy um and he said um sorry i'm just a dumb tradie which means a technician of some kind he said, I'm just a dumb tradie and, and I came to your show and I'm going to be completely honest, but I came on, on a, just a whim just to see the chicks. And he said, I have no idea this kind of thing existed, how good you guys are, how well you perform, what strong dances you are and how beautiful this type of show is. I remain corrected. Thank you for a great show. So, you know, one by one, we're just winning them over. <laughs> <laughs> one bloke at a time. Oh, Marissa, thank you so much. And when your show gets up and going, I hope that you will post things so that we can celebrate that with you. And I know there's gonna be a lot of bluebells that will be clapping and just, just to yeah, see this rooting for up. us because yeah. we need to keep it going. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 52 now and I'm like, oh God, come on girls, <laughs> please do my job for me. They did the kicks Someone. for me. I just stand there. <laughs> they, and as it should be, you've served your time. <laughs> so we're going to say, how do you say goodbye in French? I forgot. Au revoir. Au revoir. I did my oh, dual lingo. It didn't get me very far. So au revoir. That sounds good. Au and au I will I will see you on Facebook and maybe in person one day. We'll we'll all oui. kick we'll all kick two inches off the floor and, and call that good. And we'll hug. And we'll hug. We'll thank hug. you, my darling. Thank you, Sherry. Thank, thank you, you so everyone much. listening. We love your group. Oh, thank you.